Hey, lots of new faces here this season. I want to follow up one thing that um, Julia said on the, on the video there. Um, this coming Saturday, we have something we call Welcome to the Family. And it's interesting this season, as, as sort of discombobulated as it's been and difficult for some of us to gather and health issues and those sorts of things, lots of new folks have really assimilated and come into the church family this season. And that this coming Saturday, we set aside a morning, we feed you on both ends, right? Provide child care. Um, and we just talk about um, who we are as a church family. What do we believe? Um, you meet some pastors, elders, staff. It's an opportunity to ask questions. Maybe you're just looking to kind of figure out what's the next step. How do I get more involved? Um, this might be your first Sunday. It's a great time. Maybe you're someone who's been here for a long time, but just has never like gotten integrally connected to the life of the church. This would be a great opportunity as well. Anyway, you can sign up on the hub. That's coming up this Saturday. But this morning, we are at long last into 1 Timothy. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles there. You know, here at Four Oaks, you, you, many of you know this, we preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons that we do that is that we want the Word of God to set the agenda for our time and what we discuss and what we're examining and looking at. But yet, let's be honest, we still have to choose which books, right? We're not going through... Leviticus this season, although I think it's an outstanding idea, and maybe it'll happen at some point. But we still have to choose which books, and so we have to ask, why 1 Timothy? And in a word, or better yet, in a number, I think the answer to that question, at least for us as a leadership, is 2020. See, I was having a convo with someone recently, and they said, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm really sad about what 2020 has done to the church meaning it's been more difficult to meet, and there's health concerns, not to mention just all the political and civil issues that are circulating out there. I, I just really feel the church is fragmented. It's more disunified than it's ever been. However, and this was sort of, you've heard me say things like this before, but let me say it very clearly now. I am more of the position that 2020 did not cause issues in the church. 2020 revealed issues in the church. See, there were fault lines already there. Fissures, cracks in the foundation and in the walls just waiting for a crisis, the perfect storm, to sort of bring them all to the surface. Let me just give you an example. For, for some of you, before COVID, as you entered that season, the local church was really just the hub of your spiritual life. And what this season has ignited for you is just this longing, this passion to gather again, to, to be face-to-face -face again, to, to get off the blasted Zoom calls one more time, right? It's it spurred like creativity, ways for, for you to connect with others. I'll, I'll come here some mornings and there'll be a small group of women who are all seating at such a distance outside, they need a megaphone to talk to one another. But you get what I'm saying, right? It's, it's for, for you who've been tethered to the life of the church, you've come to realize, you know what? Community is more important than ever. For others, though, maybe in the church, it's had the opposite effect, Maybe going into this season, you've had a peripheral relationship to the church, where the church has been more like a hobby or one of the many options on a 
buffet menu at one of those all-you-can-eat steakhouses, or, or just it's kind of a, a lifestyle option. If it works, it works. If it fits into my life, great. And what this season has done, maybe for, for some of those folks, it's only deepened the divide. It's only resulted in sort of a COVID church, yeah, you know, hasn't really changed that much for me. Hasn't really, you know, does, I mean, I, I'm content with where I am. I'm just streaming every week and just kind of doing my own thing and creating my own spiritual life. First Timothy, Four Oaks, speaks to these things. And the next five months, we're going to come sort of face-to-face with what we are calling as the theme of this series, Order in the House. What does it mean to be the church of God? What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? Something that Jesus loves so much that he laid his life down for her is something, is it not, worthy of our study and understanding and attention because anything that Jesus loves, we want to love too. And so this morning, we're just going to look at two verses, and we haven't been standing for our scripture readings because we've been going through Genesis, and to stand through those genealogies was always a little much, right? But we're going to stand this morning and for this series, so I invite you to, to, to stand with me if you can. And we're going to read these first two verses, which might be deceptively simple on the surface, but which have so much meat here, if God will just show us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom from above to tell us, to instruct us about what it means to love one another, to love you, to love your bride. Lord, we confess we're very fragmented in many ways about a lot of things and a lot of issues, but there is certain truths that we can unite our hearts around, and the gospel of Jesus is at the center of that. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear this season. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart that wants to run after your will and to do it, to come under. Lord, we ask for your grace in this. In your name we pray. Amen. You may find your seat. Three points this morning. Here we go. We're going to look at the purpose. In other words, why is Paul writing Timothy, his protege? Number two, the particulars, what was happening in the church and what were some of the dynamics that we need to be aware of as we study. And then finally, there's a prayer that Paul offers here, and there's a prayer that we want to orient to as well. And so let's dive in, church, the purpose. Now, the poet Maya Angelou famously said, when someone shows you who they are, what? Believe them, right? And in the same way, when a scripture writer tells you why you are, why he is writing, and they don't always make it this clear, but when they make it this clear, we need to believe them, right? And pay close attention. And in 1 Timothy 3.15, I think, comes the closest to giving us 
Paul's heart, his central driving mission and purpose in writing this letter to Timothy. And here it is. Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A little background here I think probably be helpful for us. Paul, remember at the end of Acts 28, was imprisoned waiting his trial. But this was Paul when he was under house arrest, so he was free to have people come and go. Paul was writing New Testament letters like this and like that. And church history tradition tells us that Paul, in fact, was released, that he was either found not guilty or his accusers did not show up to accuse him, but he was released. And it was at this time that Paul wrote three letters. And these were his last three letters, and we call them the pastoral epistles. They are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now, what's interesting about this is that all of these letters are centered on and have to do with the issue of the church. In, in other words, in or, Paul is wanting to communicate to Titus, to Timothy, how the churches they were leading to, were to relate to one another, what it meant to be the body of Christ in a secular pagan culture, how they relate to those around them. And we have to ask, why was the church so on Paul's heart and mind at this point in his ministry? And I think the, the answer is, is pretty clear. Paul was nearing the end, and he knew it. Paul was entering the twilight of his ministry. We know that it was only going to be a couple of short years, a few short years after his imprisonment in which he was released, that Paul was going to be imprisoned again a second time, but this time in a dungeon. And he was going to be awaiting his fate of martyrhood. In fact, Paul wrote his very last letter, 2 Timothy, while he was waiting execution at the hands of Nero. What all of this means is that as Paul is coming to the end of his life, he is keenly concerned about the church. He is keenly concerned about what is going to happen to the people that he invested all most of his formative professional life and years into. He wants to be certain that the people of God remain on mission after he is gone. And by the way, what a great model for retirement, right? And interesting thing about retirement and the Bible, the Bible really doesn't have much to say about that. In fact, it kind of says zero. Now, it doesn't mean that all of us will keep working in our capacity the way that we are. What it means is that as long as we have breath, we are called to be productive agents for the kingdom of God. And this is why Paul kept on writing and ministering up until the day that he died. Now, let me say something at the outset here as we embark on this endeavor. Now, it, this is kind of like truth in advertising or fair warning, whatever you want to say. But Kent Hughes, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, says that the pastoral epistles are in fact, and I'm quoting here, shocking and disjunctive. In other words, they're tough, 
for middle-class ears. They're, they're in many ways wholly incompatible with 21st century values. As we walk through this book over the next five months, Four Oaks, we're going to hear things about men and women and their roles in the church and home. Paul's going to get all up in our business about our money, right? He goes from, from preaching to meddling. He's going to talk about the kind of clothes we wear and our leaders and what to do with false teachers and theology and how we're to pray and treat our enemies. But you want to know what I think is the most shocking and disjunctive thing about First Timothy is to us postmodern people? The most shocking and disjunctive thing is that God actually has an expectation for how we are to engage his bride, the local church. Now, now, in other words, we all understand, if you're a Christian, that God has certain commands, expectations, calls to obedience when it comes to things in our personal life, right? Like, what kind of marriage are we going to have? What kind of parents are we going to be? What what, what's, what do we do? What do we endeavor to do with our lives in terms of our school, our jobs, our parenting, our relationships? In other words, those things that kind of sort of most impact us personally. We, we, we probably have a pretty good understanding that God calls us to certain things in our personal lives. But what First Timothy is going to show us is that God also has certain expectations, commands, calls to obedience that he wants us to pursue in relationship to one another in this room, to the body of Christ. And the reason this can be shocking and disjunctive is that for for many of us, maybe you, I don't know, you really haven't given this much of a thought, to be honest. See, the way that expressive individualism has manifested itself in our culture, we're very quick to want to say, well, just look what's happened, Pastor Paul, to the, the, the standards of sexuality. Look, look, look what's happened to the, to, the, to the standards of materialism. Look what's happened to this. Look what's happened to that. All the while failing to realize this is the very same air that you and I are breathing. And we just assume, we just assume that when it comes to the church, it's up to us to set our own terms of involvement. If and when we give, that's up to us. If and when we serve, that's up to us. If and when we worship, that's up to us. If and when and under what terms and conditions we pursue community, that's up to us. We have really been discipled culturally into something that Chuck Colson, who's now with the Lord, calls McChurch, where we are simply on a buffet line of all sorts of options to pick and choose from in our life where we are consumers, we are customers. And we're, we're not only are we like pulling together our own private spiritualities, we're, 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 we're creating this, this sort of this smorgasbord, this, this pot, this mutt-like stew of what it means to be a Christian in the body of Christ. Now, here's something we have to understand. I'm saying it right from the top. This kind of thinking and talking is completely foreign to the New Testament. It is completely foreign to what Paul talks about in these letters. 
I want you to look at verses one and two for a second. And let me, let me start in verse one. And just even right there, Paul throws the gauntlet down for us. He says, Paul, and he's writing as an apostle. Now, here's why that's important. He is a rep, Paul is a representative of the risen Christ. Remember, Paul is ambushed by Jesus. That's a good word for it. And if you're saved this morning, it's because you were ambushed by Jesus. Jesus ambushed Paul on the road to Damascus and gave him a command. And this is why Paul says here he is an apostle by the command of Jesus. This wasn't a suggestion by Jesus. Paul, I want you to think about what it means to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Why don't you get back to me on that? And Paul did the obligatory I'll pray about that, Pastor Paul. All right. Is that what Paul did? No. He's struck and blind. He's there on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Paul, you're my chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul is writing under compulsion. He is the representative of Christ. He is Christ's ambassador. So please understand something here, church. What Paul is offering here in this letter is not a leadership manual. It's not three tips to a more fruitful and flourishing church life in the 21st century. Paul is not offering suggestions. Paul doesn't want you to go home and do the I'll, ubiquitous, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that. You know, I'll, I'll kind of pray on that one. Paul, Paul makes this crystal clear. What he is writing is binding just as much as the Ten Commandments are binding for you and me. This is why he is writing. This is binding for all times and all places. And church, what a win it would be even just this morning for this to be a new category for some of us. That in fact, the word of God makes a claim on us. And not only on us personally, but us corporately together. Now we're going to find though, as much as this makes a claim on us, it's Please understand something, church. It's a glorious claim. It's an amazing claim. And once you get the vision and the heart for what it means to be a part of the people of God, you'll never go back. Oh, you'll, you'll never go back. Because that's the good life. It's the life flourishing. It's the life abundant. It's, it's certainly, it's a road marked with suffering. Absolutely. But it's a glorious suffering as God gathers his people as Katie Hughes is the wife of our East Pastor Josh Hughes says, the church is God's forever family. Do you realize that there will no longer be the biological family in heaven? No longer. There's only one permanent family for all eternity, and that's the family of God. And I'm praying for all of us that we will see it, that we'll imbibe it, that we will live it. So that's the purpose. Here, let's look at the particulars. Number two, let, let's, let's get under the surface a little bit. What specifically was happening at the church that Timothy was at that prompted Paul to write? Now remember, Paul has gotten out of prison, and he just has a few short years left. And remember all the churches he's planted. There's a lot going on, right? There's a lot of matters to attend to, a lot of affairs of the churches that he wants to be involved with. And it tells us in verse 3, you can look there, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, 
Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In other words, Paul was in Greece, and he gets word that some bad stuff is going down in Ephesus. And so what he does is that he gets Timothy, he sends Timothy along to lead that church, to pastor that church. And remember, the church did not vote on him, by the way, right? He just rolls in there. He's called to lead. He's called to set things in order. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do until I get there myself. Now, the reason that I think Paul has a special urgency here is that I believe Ephesus has a very special place in his heart. We know from reading Acts, most likely, that, at, that, the, that the church in Ephesus was the crown jewel of Paul's ministry. Do you realize that Paul most likely spent more time in Ephesus planting that church and ministering than any other church in the New Testament? He spent a lot of time at the church in Corinth, but it's pretty clear from Acts 19 that Paul spent two to three years in Ephesus teaching daily in the Hall of Tyrannus, which I think you can still see the ruins of that place if you travel over to modern-day Turkey. But Paul spent two to three years there, and we know from church history and from the rest of the New Testament that Ephesus remained one of the long-standing faithful churches of the first century. Now, it will be helpful for us to know that the Ephesian church, and, and we deduce this from what Paul is saying in this letter, was not dealing with kind of this wild, debaucherous, out-of-control living on the part of its people. That would be the church in Corinth, right? And, and Ray Stedman, who is now with the Lord, was a pastor in San Diego at a church in California, and he preached through 1 Corinthians and called it First Californians. Okay, that's Ray. So blame, blame him for that, right? The church in Corinth was a mess, but it was, it was an obvious mess, right? There was sexual immorality, group factions, drunkenness at communion. There was just a whole host of problems that were easy to see. And these problems would be what I would call younger brother problems, prodigal son problems. Remember when the prodigal son went into the distant country and squandered his inheritance on prostitutes and wild living? It wasn't a mystery what the nature of the sin was that the younger brother was dealing with. That, that was the church in Corinth. The church in Ephesus, however, dealt with more what I would call older brother sin. This is the kind of sin that flies under the radar. This is the kind of sin where legalism masquerades as godliness, where pride mimics faithfulness, where there is internal dissension and arguments and speculative theology and philosophical meanderings. In other words, there's something happening on the inside that is rotten to the core. And we're going to find out that some of this is emanating from the elders of the church in Ephesus themselves. Remember in Acts 20, when Paul is on the shores of Miletus, he's saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus, and he prophesies this. He says, there's going to be those who come into your own midst, from your own midst, who are going to lead people astray, who are going to be false teachers, who are going to crave controversy. Does that not like describe the church today? They're going to crave controversy. They're going to feed off of it. They're going to get their eye off the ball and in accordance lead 
people astray. And what we're going to find, I think, church, through this study of 1 Timothy, and this is the way it's always been, that the biggest threat facing the church is not what's going on outside. It's always what's happening inside. You see, my guess is if we took a poll and we said, what is the biggest problem, danger facing the evangelical church in this season? Choose one. Some of us might say, well, the, well, the biggest threat is obviously like progressivism or secularism or the government or big tech or media or the culture warriors that are out there sort of trying to abscond with and take captive our kids with hidden philosophies. And all those things certainly have their place, right? They all certainly have their set of dangers. But I think what we're going to find, church, here in 1 Timothy is that Paul's going to tell us the biggest danger and threat to the church is the one that's residing in all of our hearts. And if we for one moment forget that, then we are on the way to that slippery slope. See, that was the Paul's point to the church in Corinth. See, they were preoccupied with the affairs of the world and everything that was going on around them. Yet they were ignoring the cancer of sexual immorality in their midst. Now, it's very interesting what Paul tells them, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Guys, there is a world of problems that is way bigger than you and me. But it's easy for us to really glide along at this 40,000-foot level and talk about all the problems out there and post about all the problems out there and blog about all the problems out there. And sometimes God just really wants to know, hey, I, I got all that, but I've got that under control. Here's what I want to know about you. Are you getting up in the morning and praying? Are, are you having a quiet time? Are you reading my word? Are you worshiping? Are you being in community? Are you being faithful? Are you working hard? Are you being obedient. So 1 Timothy church is going to call us to set our own affairs in order, and it will be tough, and it will be a challenge, but remember, remember, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, right? But boy, it raises up a harvest of righteousness in the lives of our children, and we as the children of God the same way. You see, one day, all of us who know Jesus are going to stand face to face with him as his pure, spotless bride. And what Jesus is in the business of doing now is preparing us for that day. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so he's changing, sanctifying, working, convicting, moving, encouraging us to be more of whom He's called us to be. Which is why, thirdly, Paul ends with this prayer, this, 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 this blessing, this benediction over Timothy. Look at verse 2. And look at the way that Paul addresses Timothy. He calls him, my true child in the faith. And that really gives us a unique glimpse into the nature of their relationship. Remember, Timothy was from Lystra, and when Paul planted a church there during his first missionary journey, 
it seems that Paul's mother and grandmother, who were both Jewish women, were converted to Christianity. So they were thus now Jewish Christians, with Timothy's dad being a Gentile pagan. And we think that most likely Timothy's family came to know the Lord and Timothy, and that the second time around, a number of years later, when Paul circulated back through Lystra, Timothy was all grown up. He was a young man. And the elders of the church in Lystra began to point out Timothy to Paul and said, Paul, you, you, you need, to, need to talk to this young man. He's got potential. He's, he's on fire for Jesus. He, and Paul gets to know Timothy. And in fact, Paul invites Timothy okay, into um, his entourage, his missionary clan, his missionary group. And Timothy, now listen, spends the rest of Paul's life with Paul. He was his most loyal and trusted companion. You know, if you've, ever, if you've ever seen one of those war documentaries that talk about the nature of relationships that soldiers make with one another when they are in the heat of battle, particularly combat, when they are dependent upon one another to take care of the other, that their lives are bound together. What a unique bond that is. It's unique among all human relationships. Now, the marriage relationship is unique among all human relationships, but this is a different kind of unique. So I guess if you're married and in combat together in the military, you've got the double whammy. Okay, so maybe that's happened. And you'll talk about, hear these soldiers talk about how they chewed the same dirt together. They live and die together. Well, Paul and Timothy, this was not fiction. This was not theory, right? Paul and Timothy, I mean, can you imagine them sitting down for that cup of coffee? They say, Paul, remember that time we both got the stew beat out of us and thrown into prison? Remember that time? Remember that time we were on that shipwreck and like almost drowned and we went on that island and that snake bit you and that was creepy? Or you no, know, he cured the guy with a snake. Like, like, Paul, remember that time you got stoned? Okay? Rocks. Okay, you rocks. You get what I'm saying, right? Remember that riot? Remember, I mean, so under, this tells us something about the nature of Paul and Timothy's relationship. Timothy was not just this robotic executive carrying out the directives of Paul, right? Nor was he just a spectator who was raising money for a summer trip and calling it missions, right? That, that wasn't what Timothy was doing either. He was a vested partner in the ministry. And there's something that we can, that's so important that we can learn about this, for Oaks. And this is a helpful conceptualization about the way we are to relate to one another as a church family. And this comes from Greg Mott. He's a pastor in Houston, Texas at a Baptist church there. He says that in the church, people are, are, we can view people one of three ways, or people can embody one of three roles. They can either be scenery, machinery, or ministry. And here's what he means. Scenery is just what it says. You are here as an observer only. Thank you very much. I'm spectating. I might as well be coming to a football game. I'm going to cheer when something good happens, and I'm going to boo when something bad happens, right? 
Don't, don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to, to get involved. I'm here just to sort of observe and offer critique from a distance and maybe an email, right? That, that sort of thing. That's very common in traditional kinds of churches where the idea is that the pastor or the pastors do the work of ministry for the people. And they're simply there to marry, bury, baptize, and whatever else is supposed to happen, right? But on the other end of the spectrum, and some of you may have been a, experienced church this way, where you're just part of the machine, right? You're a cog in the wheel. I remember being involved in a ministry in college that if you were discipling someone as a part of this ministry and they did not sign on to A, B, and C, then move along from them and find somebody who would be willing to do A, B, and C. See, they were just machinery. Well, neither of those options for Oaks are the way we want to be or the way we want to treat one another. We want to understand that people are actually ministry. So in other words, we're here as leaders to help equip you for ministry, to do ministry, to be in body, to, to, to multiply ministry. We only have a few hands, okay, as leaders. So God has called us, in, according to Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for works of ministry. But at the same time, we're equipping people, okay, not robots, Okay? Not bots. We're, we're, we're equipping people who have real needs and real concerns and real issues going on in their life, which means that we want to be walking alongside each other. We want to be shepherding each other. We want to be caring for each other, not leaving our wounded on the battlefield, while at the same time not calling everyone to be a part of the kingdom conflict that we're involved in. We don't always get that right. We always want to be growing in that, but that is what we endeavor to do. That is the nature of the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. When Paul was gone, Timothy was going to carry the mission forward. See, guys, Paul was a one-man kind of church thinker. In other words, the only head of the church is Jesus. And everything is pointed, invested in him. And what Paul says here, let me address this and we're going to be done. What Paul says here or speaks to, to Timothy here, we usually skip over this stuff. It just seems like old habit. I want to, I want to draw your attention to it. Look in verse 2. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. If you look at all of Paul's letters, all of them address or speak to the recipient in terms of God's grace and God's peace. And this is because in the ancient times, people would say greetings. And so Paul changed that Greek word to charis. It means grace. So in other words, may God's love, his forgiveness, his favor rest upon you. Peace he gets from the Old Testament shalom. And he's, he's saying not only may God's grace rests upon you, but may his peace, that you would know that he has made peace with you through the cross, that you now have a settled sense in your soul that all is right with my soul because of Jesus. Those are standard in Paul's letters, and they're very meaningful. But in only one other place does Paul put this third 
adjective, this third greeting, I'm sure it's not an adjective, and the English teachers will tell me what it is, right? This third, this third descriptor, it's grace, it's peace, and it's mercy. Only one other time in a letter to Paul that Paul writes does he mention all three of these. You know what the other letter was? Second Timothy. Both times to Timothy, and we have to ask why. You see, grace is, 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 is wrapped up in this idea of God's forgiveness, which is a wonderful thing. But mercy denotes our need for ongoing care, ongoing grace. Mercy, mercy is that ongoing activity where God treats us better than we deserve. Grace wipes the slate clean, yes. But mercy, oh, it gives us a leg up and more. And Paul is saying, Timothy, grace and peace and mercy to you. Because guess what? Timothy is going to need mercy. He's walking into the lion's den. And you've heard it said, it's very true, timid Timothy. Where do we get that, this idea that Timothy was timid? We're going to find it in the next couple of weeks where Paul says, Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of what? Fear. Timothy was a fearful man. We know from 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's writing the church in Corinth, and he says, I'm sending Timothy onto you. And this is so interesting. Paul never says this. He says, be gentle with them. You know, he's, he's a sensitive soul. He's an Enneagram 4, of course, whatever. You get what I'm saying. He's, he's sensitive. He's emotional. In fact, we find in one of his letters that, that, that you get the sense that Timothy's kind of like anxious and has this weak disposition because he's like, Timothy, quit drinking that dirty well water, right? Drink some wine for your stomach. You just get the sense that Timothy is this timid guy who has a frail and fragile constitution, and Paul is sending him into the teeth of the lion, by the way, with no apologies. Because it's a reminder, for Oaks, as we endeavor embark on this season in this book, as we endeavor embark on this season as the family of God into 2021, 20, we need his grace and we need his peace, and we need his mercy. Because we are a sinful, blinded, short-sighted, selfish group of people apart from the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus Christ. It's why he came and died. And as one of my seminary profs said, and you've heard me use this line before, if Jesus loved his church enough to die for her. We can love her enough to be patient with her. So walk this path of the gospel of grace together. Let's pray. Lord,